during our prayer time this morning, there was uh, a text that came in to me, uh, and so I just want to share that prayer request as well. Um, Benita, uh, who is our office administrator, asked for us to pray for her as well. She has been off of work for the last few months um, and really would love to be here with us and serving you as a congregation. And so please pray for her and for Dale and the family as they continue to walk through uh, the valley that they're in right now. And why don't we take a moment to, to pray for her and uh, for what comes for her. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Benita and the way that she has used her gifts here among us in the office. And Lord, we know that she would, uh, she would love to be back here serving you in this way and serving as part of this congregation as she goes through this time and is praying for healing. Lord, we add our prayers for healing to hers and to Dale's. We pray, God, that you would surround them and be close to them and that you would lift her up, that you would give her joy in knowing that you are with her at all times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for praying with me uh, in that as well. As was mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is a season of preparation. You know, in, where, as I grew up in the evangelical church, um, we didn't really spend much time talking about the Lenten season, this period of six weeks before Easter. It's just kind of, I mean, at least in my imagination, as in my memory, and I don't trust my memory all that much, I will, I will admit that. But in my memory, it was kind of like we were just going along, we had church every Sunday, we would go and we would do the church thing, and then all of a sudden, hey, here's some palm branches on Palm Sunday, it's time to, to do the, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then it was Good Friday and Easter. It seemed like it just like sprang upon us all the time. At least, I mean, I'll admit, I wasn't paying much attention as a teenager either. But it just kind of surprised us and it's like, oh yes, we celebrate. This is, the, this is great that we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is important. Yes. And as I've grown older, as I've matured in my faith, and as I've been part of the leadership of the church for these many years, I have come to appreciate more and more how a season of preparation opens our hearts to what God is showing us, softens our spirits to receive from him, and opens our eyes to what God is doing in us and around us. I know that just a couple months ago we celebrated Advent and Christmas. And it's a time of joy and celebration as we remember God coming to be with us. And yet, that pales in comparison to the joy of resurrection that we find in Jesus Christ. But his resurrection comes after the death of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice for us on the cross. As you prepare during these next 40 days plus Sundays, as we move into the season of Lent, 
I invite you to take up habits, practices, set aside time in which you can reflect on what God is saying to you, what God is doing in you and around you, and allow your heart to be drawn towards him in new ways. One of the ways that we are doing this is through our sermon series for the next number of weeks. During this Lenten season, we are focusing on the theme of the names of Jesus. If your memory is better than mine, then you'll remember that back in December, we also were focused on the names of Jesus. And we talked about the names of Jesus that related to his coming to be with humanity. And now as we go into this Lenten season, we're looking at names of Jesus that are found in the scriptures that point to him as the Messiah, the promised one, the one who comes to reconcile us to God. This morning, we are focusing on the name of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God. In John 1.29, which was read for us just a few moments ago, it says that John the Baptist sees Jesus and he saw Jesus coming towards him and he says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the disciples of John the Baptist who were there, for the crowds that were around him as they taught, when he says something like this, when he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they would immediately have a context and a picture that that makes sense in for them. They are in a time in which the temple and the sacrifices at the temple are a part of everyday life, and particularly at the time of the Passover. There would be a sacrifice made in which the high priest would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people and take the blood of the lamb that was, that was offered and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant so that the sins of the people would be remembered no more, that the people would be able to be in true worship, true reconciled relationship with God. So when John the Baptist is saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Immediately, the people there, the disciples there would have thought of the, the temple sacrifices, the blood of a lamb sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. And I think the next thought would have been, what are you talking about? That this man, Jesus, is connected with this imagery of the temple sacrifice. Throughout the scriptures, we find this pattern of sacrifices and blood in which the sins of the people are paid for, in which there is a penalty that is paid so that the people are set free, so that they don't have to carry that burden of sin. Why does God require these sacrifices in the first place? What is it about blood 
that does something for our sins. This goes back to the story of Genesis, Adam and Eve, and as sin entered into the world, we are told in the scriptures that the penalty that we deserve for sinning, sinning means when we turn our backs to the will of God in our lives, when we choose something other than that which God has desired for us and commanded us, when we are disobedient, and there's different kinds of disobedience. There's the disobedience of, you know, the, the two-year-old child. Uh, I'm not talking about the child. I'm talking about the way that a two-year-old child is. When a parent says, I need you to do this, and the child goes, no. The willful pushback. That's one kind of disobedience and sin. There is also the sin of omission when we know what we ought to do, when we know very clearly and very well what it is that is good for us, what will lead us into a good path, and we just, we just kind of close our eyes, turn the other direction, and hope it's all going to be okay. There is also sin, which is unintentional sin. When we haven't been paying attention when our eyes haven't been opened and we go about and we stumble and we blunder and we end up messing things up. But all of these things, we are told in the scriptures, all of this imperfection, all of this brokenness, all of this willful disobedience has a price. God tells Adam and Eve in the garden that the price for sin is death. And so throughout the scriptures, what we find in this sacrificial system is a way that God is providing a merciful way through that punishment. Rather than dying as we deserve because of the disobedience and sin, a substitute is brought forward, an innocent lamb. And the blood of that lamb represents the blood that would be shed in death. And so God turns from the sin of the people and the blood of the lamb gives peace. It is a substitute for the death that we deserve. There's something really interesting that happens in the scriptures. When we talk about Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, we often immediately jump to the Passover and the story of the people of Israel in Egypt. And we're going to get there yet. But there is a, a, a lamb that is slain earlier in the text that actually provides a beautiful image of what God is actually up to in this world. We find that story in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, we have the story of Abraham and Isaac. Now, some of you are familiar with this story and others are not. I would invite you to read that full story later on in Genesis chapter 2. I'm just going to touch on a few verses from that text this morning. Now, Isaac 
was a son that was given to Abraham as a promise of God. In his old age, more than a hundred years old, it was a miracle child. And after this child has grown up, and they think Isaac was probably close to around 30 years old at this time, it says in verses 1 and 2, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. He said, God says to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. We're not going to get too much into the, the, the testing that God was doing here with Abraham. But needless to say, Abraham recognizes the voice of God and acts in obedience immediately. As they go, it says that, that Abraham goes with two of his servants and loads up some wood on a donkey and takes his son Isaac, and they travel to Mount Moriah. Moriah is about three days' journey from where they are at that time, and they go to that mountain that God shows them. And Isaac says to his father in verse 7, he says to his father, Abraham, Father, and and his father says, Here I am, son. And he said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Because I thought we were going to go make a sacrifice, but there's no lamb that we've brought with us. And Abraham in verse verse 8 says to him, To him, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. Now, Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide the lamb. Knowing that God has said to him, you will offer your son to me. An interesting thing that we find in some of the older texts of the, of the scriptures, as they translated from the Hebrew into English, some of the older translations actually word it a little bit differently in verse 8. Instead of saying God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, it's translated this way. It says, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Do you catch the difference here? God himself will provide a lamb, or God will provide himself a lamb. Now, I'm not saying that one of those two is correct and the other incorrect. We, we struggle when it comes to dealing with ancient texts and finding the, the exact meaning And perhaps there is some mystery in there. But I think beyond that, there is also something for us to pay attention to. Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. And they walked on. As we get to verse 13, it says that they go through this process and they prepare an altar on the mountain of Moriah. And then they take the wood and they put it on the altar. 
And then it says that Abraham binds his son and places him on the altar. And then God intervenes and says no. Sends an angel, say stop. You have shown that you are faithful. You have shown that you will listen to my word. And then it says in verse 13, and Abraham looked up and saw a, a ram, which is a sheep, caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. God has provided a lamb for the sacrifice. In verse 22, Abraham says of that place, he says, the Lord will provide. Some of you may know it in one of the names that we have for God from the Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. God, my provider. It says, God will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. This story in Genesis chapter 22 is a foreshadowing of what God is doing through Jesus, the Messiah. Let's look at some of the things that are going on there in this prophetic foreshadowing. He says in verse 2, God says to Abraham, take your only son, the one whom you love. Have you heard that before? John chapter 3, verse 16. God gives his only son, whom he loves, his beloved son, He says in verse 2 that you are to go to Mount Moriah. Do you know where Moriah is? Those of you who are very up on your biblical geography, have you you done that? Do you know what that is? We have another name for Moriah. Moriah is the Temple Mount, where the temple of God is built by Solomon. Solomon. In Jerusalem, the mountain of Moriah is the Temple Mount. And it's said in tradition of the Jewish people that the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, is built over the spot where Abraham goes to offer this sacrifice to God. It's the same place. It's the same place. In the text, it says, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the mountain where they were going to offer. Have we heard anything about three days before in relation to the Lamb of God? Maybe. Now think of it. Three days previously, what has God said to Abraham? God has said to Abraham, go and offer your son to me. In Abraham's heart, his son has died. And on the third day, he looks up. There's also something else that's we found that's kind of interesting in this text. In verse 6, we find something about Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain to where they are going to offer the sacrifice. Which is interesting because Mount Moriah is not a really tall mountain. It's not even a really difficult mountain to climb up. As you already know, Jerusalem is now the city that is there. There's a city built on top of this. You can walk up to the top, and they have brought with them a donkey that is carrying the wood all the way on their journey. Why? Why in this story would Abraham stop and take the wood off of the donkey, and it says, 
gave the wood to Isaac to carry up the mountain. It's a prophetic foreshadowing of another beloved son who carries the wood of the cross to the place of sacrifice. And we find then in verse 13, God himself will provide a lamb. Or as in some of the older translations say, God will provide himself a lamb. In 22.14, Abraham calls that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. All the way back at the beginning of the story of God with the people of Israel, because Abraham is the forefather of all of the people of Israel, even there in that first story we find a lamb that is provided by God in a sacrificial way. Now let's turn to the Passover. We hear in the text of the Exodus, as God is leading his people out of captivity in Egypt, that there are these plagues. All of them, these, all of these plagues were to have Pharaoh know that this is the God of gods, the high God, the creator God, who is telling him to let these people go. But again and again, the Pharaoh says no. And finally, there is a tenth plague to come, which is the plague of the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But the people of Israel are told to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood from that lamb to paint it on the doorposts of their house and so that when the death comes through, the people are spared because of the blood and they do not die. The Passover lamb is one of the images of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. The one whose blood shed on the cross causes death to pass over us so that we might have eternal life in him. The Lamb of God that John speaks of to his disciples and that we read of in the scriptures is Jesus, the one who comes to fulfill the sacrificial system and to supersede it, to do away with it and the need for it. His death on the cross atones for all of humanity, for all time, which we receive as we put our trust and faith in him. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we hear about Jesus as this sacrifice. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. This is the temple system, where the lambs are sacrificed so that the sins of the people can be passed over, so that God, so as a substitute for their death, the lamb dies instead. 
And then it goes on to say, but when Christ, when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since then has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool under his feet. Can you think of that image for a second? I like, oh man, I hesitate to do this. But you know when you have finished a task and you're all done and it took you a long time and it was, it was a hard thing to do and you are tired and you go into your living room and you have your lazy boy there, what do you do? Yes, plop down it and what do you do? Pull the lever, right? And the feet come up. You are done. It is time to rest. That's the image that comes into my head when Jesus has completed this sacrifice for all humanity for all time and the blood of Christ has taken care of the sins of all people. He goes and he sits down at the right hand of God and puts up his feet because it's done. It's finished. The battles are all won. The struggles are all over. The victory is complete. Verse 14 says this, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified are those who have acknowledged their sin before God and repented and welcomed the forgiveness and the grace of Christ into their lives and said, Jesus is Lord. How does this work exactly? This isn't a blind forgiveness. This isn't a cheap grace. This is costly. Sin comes with a penalty that is death. And in Christ, the Lamb of God, that death is defeated and the power of that death over all of us who have been disobedient who have been blind, who have been broken, who have turned away from God, it is reconciled. You see, God doesn't ignore our sin. He makes a way for our sin to be reconciled, to be redeemed. He makes provision. God provides for himself a lamb that will take away our sin. The Lamb of God, Jesus, makes it possible for us to be in relationship with God and enter into eternal life. We call this atonement. When our sins are atoned for, when the price is paid. And sometimes we get too wrapped up exactly in which kind of atonement image are we going to focus all of our attention Throughout the scriptures, we find various ways in which, we are, in which the scriptures describe what God is doing through Jesus the Messiah. We have the image of atonement that's called victory over the powers, where Satan is defeated because he holds a grip over us and Jesus offers himself as a ransom for our sins. 
the ransom is paid and Jesus is put to death only for Satan to find out that death cannot hold him and he rises again in victory. Death is defeated. Another way of describing what Jesus is doing in the scriptures is that Jesus is the second Adam, the representation of all of humanity. And where the first humanity has turned away from God, Jesus, as the second Adam, the representation of all of humanity, chooses faithfulness, complete faithfulness. And because of that complete faithfulness, we too can walk in faithfulness. Here in the imagery of the Lamb of God, there are two ways in which that atonement is imagined. One is that which I've mentioned a few times already, substitution, where Jesus as the Lamb takes our place. Where our death is the deserved penalty, Jesus takes that death upon himself. The completely innocent one, the Son of God, takes our place in substitution for our death. The other image that is found here is that of satisfaction, that the penalty for sin has been paid. And because it has been paid, we are set free, and we no longer need to pay it. I want to end off our time this morning in this image of Jesus as the Lamb by looking again at Revelation chapter 5, which was read for us this morning, and we sang about it. The elders are gathered around the throne in this apocalyptic literature which talks about how God is reconciling the whole world, how things are being made right. And they have these scrolls which describe what God is doing, but they are in despair because there's no one who is holy and righteous that can come and open the scroll so that it can be done. And then in Revelation 5 verse 9, they find this one who is worthy, the righteous lamb, the son of God, the innocent one who comes, and they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seal, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is who Jesus is, the innocent one, the son of God, the substitute for us who takes our place, the sacrifice that sets us free. This is why we take time, because that is no small thing. I don't know if I can take it in. I don't know if I can understand it. There is deep mystery there. There is deep wonder there. And it takes time to rest in the presence of God and to consider all that he has done for you and for me and for all people of all time. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In these coming weeks, may we turn our attention to God's love and that God has provided a way, God has provided a lamb whereby we may be set free. Amen. 